Do you have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep? Are you tired in the mornings? Get a restful night's sleep with Sweet Dreams. Yes, Sweet Dreams. It's a natural sleep product made by blending the highest quality Colorado hemp with the power of melatonin. Go to naturalrxsource.com for more information. That's naturalrxsource.com. Put in the code SLEEP10, that's SLEEP and the number 10, for 10% off your first order. Go to sleep, stay asleep, sweet dreams. Before we start the show, I just wanted to reach out and say that if you are loving listening to The Truth Prescription as much as we are loving making it, please subscribe to the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio, to name a few. And come check us out at www.thetruthprescription.com to get more insights and info, because the truth will set you free if you let it. And like, oh, the costs of healthcare have gone up. No, no, no. Costs haven't gone up. The price has gone up. Are doctors getting paid way more than before? Are nurses getting paid way more than before? You know, I mean, rates have like doubled in the last 10 years. I doubt you're getting paid double. Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gavis, and each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears, and let's get into this. Come on. Good people, welcome back. Episode number 51, The Truth Prescription. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gathers. And today I have the pleasure of talking to Mr. David Chase. Hey, David. Hey, great to be on. Looking forward to our chat. Actually, it's Dave Chase, not David Chase. Oh, do you care? Usually Dave, but you know, if you're an old aunt, you can call me David. And <laughs> I'm, I'm good with that. Well, you know, interestingly, I'm sure you know this. David Chase was the guy that wrote The Sopranos. So when I first started doing research, I was like, whoa, this guy, this guy looks old. <laughs> he wrote The Sopranos. <laughs> a little, little bit different than Health Rosetta. But anyway, Dave is a venture capitalist and author, serial entrepreneur, healthcare advocate, documentary film producer, and creator of the aforementioned Health Rosetta, which we will get into. His last book, The Opioid Crisis, Wake Up Call, was released, was it last year or two years ago? Last year, yeah, around Labor Day. Okay, excellent. And your previous book was The CEO Guide to Restoring the American Dream. All this we'll get into, but sort of talks about how we are disproportionately funding healthcare and in the process of hurting Americans. How are you feeling, Dave? I'm feeling great. Happy to be alive. Beautiful weather in the Pacific Northwest, which is where I'm based. And so you got to smile when you see sun in the Pacific Northwest. No, it's true. I'm looking out of an overcast window. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm in New York City. It's about 45 degrees. Are you in Washington State? Yep. If you ignore Alaska, top left corner. The <laughs> right, right. If you ignore Alaska. All right. So let's jump into the truth prescription. For my new listeners, I'll explain. Basically, all successful people, no matter the industry, have had to go through and deal with certain truths. And it was accepting those truths that allowed them to break through and move forth in their career and become more successful. So, Dave, I'm sure you got some truth to, to drop on us. 
You want to do personal or professional first? Well, they're pretty interwoven. So why don't we go with professional and we can pull into the personal as well. All right. Just tell us a story about, you know, a situation that you were in personally slash professionally. It was a truth that you either were ignoring or that you were not aware of and that at some point you decided, you know what, I'm going to have to deal with this in order to get to the other side. Yeah. I mean, I would say that it was one where I've spent most of my professional career in the healthcare industry on the technology side primarily. And I really believe that we had the best healthcare system, you know, because we were spending a lot of money. There's certainly no country that's got more passionate and smart nurses and doctors. So we have all the ingredients that you would expect to have the best possible healthcare system. It's not for lack of spending or lack of amazing talent and passion, but it ultimately was a personal experience that sort of was the punch in the nose of kind of a collection, but it was really culminated with the last one. Unfortunately, I had 10 friends my age or younger by the time I was in my late 30s who died. 10? 10. Wow. And, you know, variety of situations, a couple that the healthcare system had nothing to do with, but most of them did. And the last one was particularly hard. It was a friend that, you know, should have had access to the best our healthcare system had to offer. She was like me, had success in the technology field and had done well. And unfortunately, you know, she got cancer. And what I learned was there's just all kinds of problems in the system because of the incentives that are out there. And at the end of the day, the system failed her in every way, and it had ruined her medically, financially, emotionally, ultimately leaving behind, you know, she was a single mother, leaving behind a 10-year-old daughter. And I realized I'd been a part of that system. (laughs) That was brutal. And it was definitely a reckoning that what's going on here? She should have had access to the best our country and our system had to offer and didn't get that. When you say it ruined her, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, she got the wrong diagnosis on her cancer, and and you find that that's not that unusual. Probably 20% of the time, there's a wrong diagnosis. When people go to, say, the Mayo Clinic for second opinions, they find that people are getting the wrong diagnosis. 40% of the time, they're making substantial care plan changes. You know, and some of the interventions are pretty brutal on one system, and further compromise you if they're not helping you. And ultimately, you know, she didn't survive. That's kind of what I was alluding to. And so, you know, that's, that was really put me deep into this journey where I have great parents. I think they raised me well. And one of the things they taught me was, you know, if you see a wrong and you don't do something about it, you're complicit. That wasn't going to be what was going to be my legacy with that friend. Cause I, I try to take positives out of, you know, even very negative situations. And so that really put me on this journey that we'll, we'll probably talk about a little bit more. And, you know, we have the best and worst of the healthcare system in our country. And the irony is the best is often significantly less expensive and really does reflect the best of our humanity. And if you look at some of the folks doing phenomenal work, there's one 
great primary care organization, for example, that they have as their tagline, restoring humanity to healthcare. That's kind of crazy that we have to restore humanity to healthcare. I mean, who are more humane than, you know, many, I'm sure the professionals you've worked with, some of the, the nurses and other docs. I mean, these are the best of our humanity, but our system has sort of extracted that out of them. And, you know, in a lot of ways, they're suffering as much or more than patients because they're living it every day. And so that's really what put me on this journey and, and realizing we have all the fixes. They've already been invented. They've already been proven. They've already been replicated, just not nearly enough. So the truth that you realized was that the healthcare system is broken. Once you accepted that, you decided to try to find a solution <laughs> to it. Yep. I mean, and, and you'd think that would be like trying to solve world peace or something. I mean, like a lot of people look at healthcare and say, gosh, that kind of reminds me of trying to solve Middle East peace. Like I'd like that solved too, but it seems sort of hopeless and out of my control. And I don't know about, you know, that, but certainly when it comes to healthcare, it's not true. That's really the, the status quo protectors kind of want you to believe it's out of your control. But the beautiful thing is it's not. And there's people making a big difference on that. And, you know, it's really amazing once that gets rolling. Okay. I see why you said it was sort of personal and professional, because it was almost like what happened to you personally sort of spurned what is now your professional focus or vision for yourself. Are you still working in the venture capital space? Not really. I mean, there's, there's some investments that, you know, still have and are managing, but basically put that on hiatus to create this sort of organization that's sort of loosely analogous to a fair trade or lead, which some people may have heard of. And that's really become my calling and my life's work to focus on that. Got it. Awesome. As a segue, talk to me a little bit about the documentary. I couldn't find it. Is it finished or close to being finished or where are we with that? The big heist. <laughs> yeah, the big heist. Yeah, we did a crowdfund, went real well. It's a process. And so it's kind of forked into a few things that I've actually been consulting on a show that has woven in some of the storylines called The Resident. It's on Fox, doing very well. Yeah, it's doing well. My residency wasn't like that, by the way. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> but they're doing a nice job of dramatizing, you know, all the stories they have are actually real. So it's not a documentary, you know, but and that was what we realized through this successful crowdfund. One of the people who emerged was a former president, Disney and Sony, and said, hey, you know, you've got an important story to tell. You know, you need to realize you're going to reach more people with scripted features and you can kind of control the narrative more. And so that's really the path we've gone down. And so there's some work and development. We're pursuing a couple of different storylines. I mean, it could be a couple films. One is related to the the last book around the opioid crisis. Another is more of a, I mean, we're just kicking around a lot of different ideas, but one of them that seems to have some traction is around kind of a near-term science fiction scenario in medicine. It's quite a process. And I'm definitely not Brad Pitt, and it took him 10 years to get his last <laughs> film out that did well. So it's a process, and and it's moving along. But, you know, it's a, meanwhile... I mean, and really the whole thought process there was, if you look at the great societal challenges that we've been trying to tackle in this country over the last 50 years, there's these grassroots movements that are kind of out of sight of most people for a period of time. And then 
you know, whether that's civil rights, climate, food, better food. And then there's this catalytic moment, you know, whether it's Selma and the civil rights, you know, scenario or a film like, you know, Inconvenient Truth or Super Size Me Food Inc., where they it kind of raises the broader public consciousness, that's media. And so, you know, we're fine with the grassroots movement continuing to take off. And then, you know, when the the film happens and even some of the stuff with the residents getting some nice visibility and some of the other press, you know, then that shines a light and helps grow the movement even bigger. Sure. Plus the relationships you're developing as a consultant are invaluable as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, you have some phenomenal writing talent out there. And that's the real challenge is you may have the raw materials, but I'm certainly I'm not David Chase, <laughs> the <laughs> Sopranos guy, and I'm not a screenwriter. And so, you know, it's definitely that's the case. Yeah, no, it's it's a challenge. You may or may not know this, but I've done three short films. Two of them I wrote and directed and the last one I produced. Even when we're doing short form stuff, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. It takes months, you know, <laughs> to get it done and get it right. So, all right, cool. My first question for you is, I heard an interview, you talked about these three concepts, which I thought was interesting, the three C's, care, team, cost, and community. Talk a little bit about how that can help folk sort of minimize their health care costs. The care team is critical from a number of levels, and it's it's both the professional and non-professional members of the care team, but I'll, I mainly focus in on the professional members of the care team because what I found in this sort of scavenger hunt around the country over the last decade is the organizations that were producing, you know, the best outcomes at the best value. They cared for the care team. And it's sad, the record levels of burnout, even suicide amongst doctors and nurses right now because of what's going on. And so it's really about going to those organizations. It's kind of common sense. Of course, if they're treated like garbage, it's hard for them to do their best work and a lot of them have been turned into, you know, cogs in the wheel and, you know, kind of glorified billing clerks where, you know, a lot of docs are spending two hours on bureaucracy for every one hour of patient care. I mean, that's not why you went to med school, right? And so that's common sense, but sometimes the least common thing is common sense as to focus on that care team. What that leads to is naturally a better patient experience. And that's kind of where the magic happens. When you have that partnership between the patient and their care team, that's when the best outcomes happen. If you're not in some distorted payment model, which unfortunately most folks are, and that's changing, is that naturally leads to lower costs. I mean, the organization I mentioned earlier, their tagline is called Iora Health that has this tagline, Restoring Humanity to, to Healthcare. They spend a lot less because guess what? They avoid unnecessary surgeries and help people on addressing lifestyle diseases and keep people out of harm's way and make sure they're getting to the highest quality places. And so it can't help but lower costs. And you see these folks, the programs are running, they're spending 20 to 40, even 50% less per capita with superior benefits and superior outcomes. And then community, you know, there's a number of ways you can define community, but the one I would focus in on is sometimes, you know, in our world, the healthcare world, you talk about the social determinants of health. And the idea is that 
you know, zip code, you know, determines health outcomes more than DNA code. Again, common sense things where guess what? Health starts at home and mom, you know, mom, not hospitals and clinics. And then it goes out, you know, safe neighborhoods, clean air, clean water, education, job opportunities, public safety, mental health, social services, all these types of things. Unfortunately, healthcare, because it's gotten to be very gluttonous and wasteful, it's stealing money away from what drives 80 to 90% of health outcomes are all these non-clinical things that happen in the community. The, you know, stories that are exciting to share. And I look at, you know, part of my role is just kind of being Johnny Appleseed, you know, to share these stories around the country is, you know, my TEDx talk and they have a chapter in my book about this, a organization that really focused in on their community. Initially, they're an employee community, but ultimately they're their surrounding community where, you know, the short version is they got healthcare right. They spend less than half per capita despite really challenging disease burden, you know, in terms of the their employees. And there's basically this dividend that pops out where they not only did amazing things for their employees, they pay for their college education, they pay for their kids' college education. And this is a working class employee base. It's a hotelier. If that wasn't enough, they adopted a nearby formally crime-ridden community, invested in kids in education in the form of daycare, pre-K, after-school programs. So far, they've funded 450 college educations, and crime went down 62%. High school graduation rate went from 45% to virtually 100%, and the entire investment was less than 5% of what they had saved compared to similar employers. So they said, well, we're going to adopt a neighborhood five times the size and do it again. And so to me, that's community, right? And that's kind of this dividend when you get healthcare right, you don't squander money. And then you can put it towards the things that actually drive health even more than a hospital does. Right. And even with that, still saving money, if you're telling me 5%, that means if they got a community five times the size, it's still only 25% of what they were spending before. Yeah. They <laughs> estimate that they have saved, they've been doing it 20 years. So this isn't some flash in the pan scenario. They estimate they've saved, last I heard, over $325 million compared to like employers, like other hoteliers. And Sure, that's helped their business. You know, they've gone from 500 employees to 5,000. That's great. You know, they they haven't had to take on the sort of debt that probably most hotels have to. But the best part is what they do for their employees and their community. Yeah, okay. That's great. I've read this stat somewhere. It's every 10 minutes, every 12 minutes, someone dies in the U.S. of an opioid overdose. You've called employers unwitting enablers of opioid addiction. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. And if, if that is the case, then what is the solution? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that's the case. And if you dive into it, you know, at a high level, you realize, okay, who's impacted by the opioid crisis? Overwhelmingly, it's working age people and their dependents. And in the U.S., if you're not low income or elderly, overwhelmingly, you get your health care through your job. And it's our benefits, you know, that have been paying for this. You know, and it's a complex issue. You know, I outlined 12 major drivers of the opioid crisis. If you look at 11 of the 12, the key unwitting enabler is the employer because 
what they're paying for is pretty sad. Let's take lower back pain. It's a, it's a good kind of microcosm of the larger scenario and just how badly we address it. It's the second most common reason people go to the doctor after cold and flu, and we just botch it. There is no evidence that giving an opioid is effective at treating lower back pain. But guess what the number one driver of opioid prescriptions is? Lower Low back, back pain. pain. <laughs> and it's the number one driver of disability. And it would be like if you're driving down the road and your car just makes some horrendous sound, you could crank up the radio and drown out that sound, <laughs> but it's not going to fix your car. And opioids, sure, they can mask some pain in the short term. But meanwhile, that's basically, you know, like putting STP in your gas tank for a, a axle problem. <laughs> it's a chemical intervention for a mechanical problem. If you don't actually get at the underlying issue, you're not going to solve it. And so our health plans pay for things where there's no evidence, like opioids for lower back pain, and then they don't pay or, or more likely make it really difficult to access things that do work, where there's lots of evidence like proper physical therapy. You know, let's go back to that Rosen Hotels as a hotelier. You look at how are they spending less than half of a typical employer? And let's just look at this one example where these people have physically demanding jobs, their maids and their maintenance workers and so on. And they thought going in, they might need a PT half a day a week. Well, guess what? They've got a PT full time that not only addresses the you know acute flare-ups, but more importantly, they go into the workplace, teach people how to lift, teach people, you know, how to stretch and kind of, you know, get your body right, right? I mean, 80% of adults will have an acute back episode at some point in their life. This is not a rare deal. And so consequently, it was interesting. I went back because I had written about Rosen in that CEO's guide book, and it was a great story. And then I got into the the opioid issue and I had this hypothesis that if you have proper primary care, which is unfortunately kind of unusual in this country, we've really destroyed primary care. But if you had proper primary care, you wouldn't have the opioid problem. And so I started to put that to the test and I reached out to Rose and said, hey, what's the story on your opioid prescriptions? I'm like, wow, well, we'll look at this. And turns out their opioid prescriptions are at one sixth of the level of a typical employer, and they have more physically demanding jobs. So that basically puts them at the same level as France or Italy, where they essentially don't have an opioid problem. And so that's the type of thing where for sure we've got to address the people who are already impacted by the opioid crisis. And we can talk about that. But we'll never get out of this mess if we don't stop addiction before it starts. And so you have to go upstream like Rosen did and get proper primary care and physical therapy and then we can get out of this mess because unfortunately, what I learned is that the opioid crisis isn't an anomaly. It is our healthcare system. And benzos, which is the category of drugs over things like Valium and Xanax, they're pretty much exactly where opioids were 10 years ago in terms of level of prescriptions and addiction. And even today, 30% of the opioid overdose deaths involve benzos. And so if we think it's an anomaly, and unfortunately, most of the media and government is, is treating it like this one-off problem, we're not going to get out of this mess and we're going to repeat it. And so that's a big part of why I decided, you know, so soon after writing the other book to write 
the opioid crisis wake-up call because, again, the, the silver lining on this is because it's a systemic problem, once you address it systemically, which is possible, you actually go a long ways towards solving the even larger healthcare dysfunction. And, you know, that's where it's got people's attention. It's got mayor's attention. It's got employer's attention. It's got, you know, the political leader's attention. Now we just need to point them in the right direction because a lot of the so-called fixes are just kind of squeezing that water balloon. They say restrict prescriptions and boom, out pops fentanyl overdoses <laughs> because right. that's actually cheaper than a, a medical prescription. And, and you can't just say, oh, you know, hey, stop taking these medications. Well, they follow doctor's orders. And, you know, taking these medications, one out of six of them after seven days will get addicted. And so we need to help those people. And so just cutting off the, the medication doesn't help them. That's what's accelerated the opioid overdose deaths because they can go get heroin or fentanyl on the streets for cheaper. And, you know, by all accounts, you know, the withdrawals from an opioid addiction are just brutal, you know, so you've got to help people, you know, get out of that. And that's what's exciting about what happened in, in Plumas County, which we can talk about kind of the, okay, once people are already addicted, what do you do? And how do you get out of that? Well, there's a good answer there too, fortunately. Are you talking about Suboxone? What are you talking about? Yeah. I mean, basically what they did, that's one of the three pillars is, you know, the Suboxone, buprenorphine, these are called medication-assisted treatment. I'm sure you know, but maybe your listeners don't. That's one of the three pillars. That's how you start to stabilize people and help them wean off of, of opioids if, if they really aren't necessary. They are Opioids are appropriate for some areas. I don't want to say there's no use for them. They're just inappropriate for a lot of things. And so that was one of the three pillars. The other two was one is... You know, you got to stabilize people and, and they made naloxone, which is the overdose reversal medication, much more broadly available. And this is a county in Northern California that I wrote about that had the highest rate of opioid overdose deaths in the state, four times the state average. They are now two years running without one opioid overdose death. I mean, it's amazing. That was part of it. And then the third piece is some of the upstream where they educated primary care docs and emergency room docs about appropriate prescribing. And, you know, this is an oversimplification, but essentially, if you follow CDC guidelines for opioid prescriptions, which they're out there, you generally don't have an opioid issue in your community. And so they've changed prescribing patterns there. And there's more work to do there. But that's pretty amazing, going from four times the state average and highest in the state, big state, to no deaths in two years running. That's pretty great. No, that's great. As you said, just for the listeners, at least in my practice, opioids, typically we only give for long bone fractures, like, you know, fractures of the femur or humerus or those type of things, or cancer patients who are in, you know, severe pain because there's some large tumor pushing, if it's lung, pushing on their lung or what have you. So there is an indication for it. But I think the other part that I've always said to, and I've mentioned this in a couple of my shows, is that the primary issue with addiction is that people are running from something. They're looking for an escape because their present reality 
their present truth <laughs> does not line up with what they want to deal with. So either it's, you know, if, if it's depression, if it's a difficult relationship, whatever it is, they're looking for an escape. And I think part of the healing is to really deal with each individual's psychosocial environment and what's affecting it. And I think once we do that, if we're able to do it effectively, then they will no longer need the escape because they'll be very well practiced at dealing with the present reality. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that you've talked about that I, I really like, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the health Rosetta in this. So my wife works for Johnson and Johnson, right? Huge healthcare company. We've been married almost five years. Every single year, our insurance premiums go up right? Mm-hmm. every single year. And it seems like they're taking away benefits each year. We spend a couple hundred more dollars, but benefits go down. Our, our options of who we can choose, which doctors we can go to, what type of dental coverage, what kind of vision coverage goes down. And so when I read this, this thing you talk about, which I didn't know that these health insurance brokers. So I want you to talk a little bit about the health insurance brokers and, and how they contribute to our elevated health care costs or rising health care costs. Because I don't think most people, the public doesn't really know about this. And then you can kind of segue into the health Rosetta. Yeah. In fact, there was a, a big expose that ProPublica and NPR had on this where I would sum it up as, well, just as a backdrop, we'll talk about Johnson Johnson. There's some benefits consultant who works for them, helps them select their benefits. And every company pretty much works through some kind of benefits broker to put together these plans. The problem is, the way the industry has been set up is they are selling themselves as a buyer's agent, you know, where they represent the buyer, but they're paid like a seller's agent, you know, so they're really (laughs) just a broker as the name would suggest. And in some cases, you know, they're pretty deft about sort of hiding that, you know, particularly with the larger employers, but at the end of the day, they have all kinds of ways they're getting paid that this NPR ProPublica expose really gets into in detail. Hundreds of thousands in bonuses. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Per person. Per person. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's, they'll pay $50,000 bonuses on a single account, you know, for, for certain things or more. And so it's, it's pretty extraordinary. And so there's this transition going on that it's sort of like stockbrokers. I don't know if, you know, People remember them from 20, 30 years ago. They, you know, they went the way of the Dota bird you know, because <laughs> it was a similar deal where they were just paid to broker stuff. And the smart ones reinvented themselves as financial and wealth advisors where the interests were aligned. And, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, imagine you're in a lawsuit and the other side was paying for your attorney. Like, would you allow that? Of course not. <laughs> it's crazy. And so you got to get that. Right. And so the thing that's really nuts is, you know, everybody is, has become used to your scenario where great news, pay more, get less. <laughs> where else does that happen in your life? And you're like, oh, the cost of healthcare have gone up. No, no, no. Costs haven't gone up. The price has gone up. Are doctors getting paid way more than before? Are nurses getting paid way more than before? You know, I mean, rates of like, doubled in the last 10 years. I doubt you're getting paid double. No, it's going down. But you actually look at it. I have a chapter in the book about this, that with the exception of some specialty pharmaceuticals, the underlying costs of healthcare haven't changed in five to 10 years. And it makes sense. Doctors and nurses aren't getting paid much more. It's pretty much just tracks with inflation. 
the underlying, you know, sutures and implants. I mean, these things are largely flat, but, you know, and I lay out in the, there's what I call the real market, which is actually fairly substantial of its cash pay because people going to so many high deductibles or being, you know, uninsured or direct contracts where they cut out the middleman. So an employer might contract with a hospital. In those, we have lots of examples. Prices are flat. In fact, they're down in some areas because there's been some efficiencies. But you wouldn't know that because it's essentially a rigged market, you know, where like these PPO networks that you hear about, you know, a company like Johnson & Johnson, the way they operate is they, quote, rent a network from one of the carriers because they're big enough to be self-insured. 98% of the companies, over a 1,000 employees are self-insured. They might have a carrier administer the plan, but they'll rent the network. Well, you basically pay to rent a network that gives you the privilege of wildly overpaying. <laughs> I mean, it's no joke where they will be paying. It's really common to pay two and a half times the Medicare rate. And we see all the time where for the same procedure, a uh, hospital is getting paid 10 times the Medicare rate. So yeah, it's okay if they're paid a little bit more. I mean, Typically, what we see is there's sort of a sweet spot around 150% of Medicare rates where hospitals won't push back on that. And then it's about 130% for doctors of Medicare rates. In fact, most doctors, that's actually a bump up because they'll get paid less than Medicare rates because the way a lot of the contracting works between the health plans and health systems or the carriers in the health systems is they'll negotiate with the big boys, you know, that have a lot of clout, and then the doctors get the leftovers. And so they'll get paid even less than Medicare rates. And so when you say, hey, we'll, we'll pay 130% of Medicare rates, like, yeah, I'll take that all day long. And so it's things like that, where that's how the employ the smart employers are spending, you know, 20, 40% less than the typical employer with superior benefits that include things like proper primary care, because that's actually really important element is where the cost will get out of control is, you know, people are just kind of left to navigate the system on their own. And, you know, sure, when the medical seas are calm, you know, you can kind of row around on your own, you're fine. And then, but they get choppy. And when they get choppy, you want a seasoned sea captain to help you navigate that. That's what a great primary care doc is. And I saw that with my dad, who went through a four-year Parkinson's journey, and I managed to get him out of, of the old system, kind of regular Medicare, and, you know, was theoretically, he was in as good as it gets with a well-respected multi-specialty clinic, blah, blah, blah. But boy, it was so much better when we got him into a proper primary care setting, you know, because you did have a doc who helped you navigate that. And I mean, the Parkinson's journey sucked. But it sucked a lot less. He, he didn't spend one day in the hospital. It was way better for my mom and him and our family. And by the way, we probably saved the taxpayers about a quarter million dollars because of what happened. I know enough about the system and what likely you know, happened in that journey. We saved a ton of money for the taxpayers by doing the right thing by my dad. And it was so much different you know, to have that. Just talk briefly about the health Rosetta Silk people, and this is sort of your your baby. We've been really talking about the health Rosetta without saying we're talking about the health Rosetta. Yeah, yeah. I'll just briefly tell folks the Rosetta stems from the Rosetta Stone, which was something that was found in 
ancient Egypt sometime in the 1790s or something. But basically, it was a it was the way that people are now able to transcode or translate hieroglyphics because there was a it was a stone that had I think Latin or Greek. Or, yeah, it was Greek on the bottom and hieroglyphics on the top, and this is how they were able to sort of translate. So what he you know what Dave is basically saying is now here's a health here's a health Rosetta where you can actually translate a way to get proper health care done in a, in a more efficient and, and, and cost-effective manner. So, Exactly. And I looked at the people who'd cracked the code and said, wow, you know, healthcare is indecipherable like Egyptian hieroglyphics. And so <laughs> thus the health Rosetta. And it was really this, you know, close to decade-long scavenger hunt to figure out who'd actually fixed healthcare and what were the common threads. And so the health Rosetta is basically just a blueprint you know, for how to do it right. And one of the things that I guess these organizations have done and and we believe is there's not one person I've met on earth who would say that the way the healthcare system is organized today would be the way you'd organize it if you were building it from the ground up. It's just a complete random set of events, you know, medical breakthrough here, legislation there, World War II here. And we've cobbled together this thing. And we sometimes draw the analogy with with LEED, which some people may have heard about LEED certified buildings. It's sort of this idea of much more efficient, sort of environmentally friendly buildings. And, and what LEED didn't do was say, hey, let's put recycle bins in coal powered buildings, like, and that will be green. Like, that would be ludicrous. Well, a lot of the so-called innovation in healthcare is equivalent of putting you know, recycle bins and coal-powered buildings, you actually need to do a reset. And what happened with LEED was not all the old buildings got, you know, destroyed one day and then the next day they're all magically green-built. Over time, you know, certain geographies were stepped up early, Portland, Austin, Boulder, places like that. And the old model waned and the new grew. And that's what you see, like, you know, what Johnson & Johnson could do or any employer can do is they don't necessarily take away the old pay more, get less benefits. They just add a new option. And, you know, we were just going through an implementation with a county in South Carolina where we thought uh, maybe the first year, 10 or 20% of the employees will adopt this health Rosetta type plan. It's got this new blueprint, proper primary care and so on. And actually 60% adopted, you know, because they make the, the new plan very appealing People get free. (laughs) And when you make good stuff free, good decisions free, and bad decisions expensive, it makes it pretty easy for people. And over probably typically a three-year period, you'll see employers will transition 80-90% of the workforce into these these type of plans that basically says, okay, you got us the boring, you know, stuff that underpins it is like, you got to get the right relationship with your benefits consultant. You don't do that. You can't get from here to there. You got to, you know, some other sort of underpinning stuff that I won't go into, but then that is a nice foundation for proper primary care, proper, what we call transparent open networks, which is a successor to PPO networks, how you address complex medical procedures through centers of excellence, like we were talking about with cancer and Mayo Clinic and so on. And then how do you get transparent pharmacy benefits? That whole pharmacy area is a big mess. And when you do that, each one of those things 
you know, will typically drive five to 10% cost savings while improving health outcomes. You guys also offer a certification, correct, for the health insurance brokers? Yeah, exactly. Those, you know, that's really the tip of the spear, right? You got to get the right people and employers will say, where do I start? And you just say, you got to work with these folks. You can go to our site. We list them publicly and we only accept in about 8% who inquire. And so it's pretty selective. We'll continue to expand it. But there's folks who cover all 50 states. And so you, no matter where you are, there's folks out there that have proper alignment you know, some of them are already very experienced at others. We're training them up on that and giving them the tools. And so we're just kind of behind the scenes. You know, the other analogy I draw is, is with fair trade, you know, and the idea with fair trade, you know, coffee or chocolate or something is when you buy that fair trade coffee, you basically, you may not know about rainforest ecosystems or indigenous people or whatever, but you pretty much can make the bet that, they're not using slave labor or child labor. They're not destroying the environment. Yeah, I'm willing to to pay maybe a little premium for that. The good news here is you don't on healthcare, you don't have to pay a premium. And it's fair for both sides, right? It's fair for the people in those countries and the workers, and it's fair for the consumer who's getting a good product. And we don't have a fair trade in healthcare right now in the status quo. The doctors are getting abused, the nurses are getting abused, the patients are getting abused by horrible costs, bankrupting. You know, we're the undisputed world leaders in medical bill-driven bankruptcies, despite spending like twice what most countries spend. I mean, it's just, it's really a remarkable achievement. If you want to think about that way that we can spend so much money and cause so much misery for the care teams and produce terrible outcomes. I mean, that's a pretty remarkable achievement and produce bankruptcies. And so really across the board, almost everybody wants change other than the few that are profiting from, you know, an out of control system. Yeah. All right, Dave, let's jump into yes or BS. You ready? Yeah. So I'm going to make a statement and you can say yes or BS and you can expound or not expound. Okay. Number one, healthcare is better in Canada. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. And I will expound Every country sucks in their own way in their healthcare. They suck a little bit less <laughs> and they don't produce the level of bankruptcy that we do. They make primary care more available, but it's still paid for kind of like what we do. So it's not that great. They're the ones who suck a little bit less than us, but it's certainly not my benchmark for where we want to go in terms of if you want to get into the, the kind of policy side. There's some good things there, like making primary care available. And when I talk to employers up there, for example, it's striking that employers in the U.S. are really talking at a level lower down on Maslow's hierarchy of, you know, kind of more survival. How do we keep, from, you know, <laughs> from bankrupting our, our employees and so on? And when I'm in Canada, they're talking about how do we improve our workforce and mental health and, and these type of things, it's striking the difference there. And so it's far from the benchmark of what I think is ideal, but relatively speaking, it's a little better than what we have. Okay. Number two. And now this question I, I got, because you talk a lot about, you know, restoring the American dream and how healthcare has killed the American dream. So number two, Dave Chase is living the American dream. 
Yes. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Good, good, good. And the thing is, everybody should be able to. And that's the sad thing is that you look at what healthcare is doing. I mentioned the bankruptcies. You know, the other example I would give was I, I have this graph I've used a lot in presentations that I fondly call the Bernie Trump graph because <laughs> it really explains the 2016 election. It had data from 2007 to 2014, looked at the middle class, healthcare costs had gone up 25%. Wages have been stagnant because of healthcare. You know, employers are actually spending a lot more money on employees than they did 20 years ago. The problem is all the dollars have gone to healthcare. Right, instead of salary, right? Yeah. You know, if they don't have wages going up and healthcare costs have gone up 25%, it came out of food, clothing, transportation. I mean, this is core stuff. And they actually had a picture of a couple fishing in Boise, Idaho, because they couldn't afford protein anymore because of healthcare. And so that's crazy. And so that's really what, you know, we're seeing with the employers and communities who are wising up is they are restoring the American dream because healthcare is unfortunately stolen it for a lot of people. Okay. Number three, legal cannabis is a good thing. Legal cannabis is a good thing. That's a good controversial one. <laughs> Yes, I would say. And because if you look at the public health outcomes of basically criminalizing drugs, it actually exacerbates the problem. And so, you know, I'm just a data based guy, you know, and I look at at what's been done. You know, a separate issue is, is it effective for medical things like that's a whole and it is for some scenarios unfortunately there's been very limited research because it's been restricted to be able to do research so there's a lot more research that needs to be done in terms of the medical value of it but when it comes to criminalizing drugs it just hasn't been effective the data is exceptionally clear on that in terms of crime rates addiction rates and all that having said that it's not a panacea either you know there's a lot of people who are very pro that. And as I've talked to, you know, addiction specialists, one of the things one of them brought up, we were talking about opioids and he said, you know, there's the real rising issue I'm really concerned about. And I thought he was going to talk about benzos and he was actually talking about cannabis and addiction there. So we have to be very conscious of, you know, these things can have be very addicting, like tobacco, opioids, and whatnot. And so I just am not in favor of the criminalization of it. Sure, sure. Okay. Number four, another controversial one. Democrats care more about health care than Republicans. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so this is a thing that I've found is that people come at it from different perspectives, but basically people want the same thing. And that's the striking thing. When you actually get to the humane level is when you say Democrats, I translate that into people. <laughs> and they almost want exactly the same thing. The interesting thing that I've seen is when you look at some of the case studies I go through and some of the tactics they use, the striking thing is some folks who are would consider themselves very conservative are implementing ideas that would be considered progressive or liberal. 
in terms of what they're doing. And the reverse is true. There's one of the case studies I have in there. It's a former Obama administration member, you know, Democratic activist, community organizer. And you look at the way they've designed their plan. They're on so-called conservative principles. And so, you know, I basically call BS on politicizing healthcare and say, you know, if you want to freeze the status quo on anything, you politicize it. So when you allow healthcare to be politicized, you're getting gamed and you need to realize that. And when you actually look at what people want, they largely want the same thing. And so there's no politics primary care, for example. In fact, you know, probably the Bush administration did more to expand the availability of federally qualified healthcare centers than just about any administration. And so that's where it's been very gratifying in the movement that we have is we're fiercely nonpartisan and we get calls from people and have lots of collaboration across the political spectrum. And at the end of the day, they're humans and they want the best for their community. And they just sort of cast aside letting it get politicized. And, and that's a big you know, message. I was like, don't let yourself get gamed. And you look at the goals of the Affordable Care Act are great. You know, I don't think too many would argue with those. But if you look at the actual results, they made a, a logical political calculus that you had to sort of make a deal with the industry because, you know, they shot down Hillary Care, you know, before. But it's very clear they just doubled down on the status quo. You look at the stock prices of the the carriers since the Affordable Care Act passed. I mean, they have done extremely well. Right, because they just, yeah, they just passed the cost over to the patient. That's all they did. Yeah, and the, and the sad thing is, while there's been expansion of Medicaid, for example, it's gotten some people off of, you know, being uninsured. At the same time, there's been an explosion in what I call the functionally uninsured, where when your life savings are less than your deductible, you're functionally uninsured. And so there's been an absolute explosion. At least as many people have become functionally uninsured as became insured. And so that didn't protect it. And so, you know, that's what I share with my, you know, Democratic friends is, look, we didn't get at the underlying dysfunction in the system. And going back to the earlier discussion of if you look at the great societal challenges, they always start grassroots, bottom up. Eventually, the politicians run to the front of the parade. And so that's where our focus is, is community by community, people restoring the American dream. And whether that's a town, a company, a union, you know, whatever that community is. And that's the way these things really change. Yeah, no, that's so true. All right. Number five, last one. Doctors make too much money. BS. <laughs> we could take every doctor's pay to zero and we would still have this problem. And so that is not the issue. I mean, th sure, there's some docs inside certain systems abusing the system just like anything. They usually get arrested. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, that's not the problem. They've pretty much been trending with inflation. Now, the thing that most people don't realize is that 
the real value creators in the healthcare system, the clinicians, the nurses, the doctors, and so on, are getting less than 25 cents on every dollar. So you have to ask yourself, where's the rest of that money going? Sure, there's some cost to you know having a hospital and some of that. That's a lot of money that is not only not going to the value creators, in many cases, that's leaving the local economies. And so a lot of what we're seeing is kind of the relocalization of healthcare. Because what's more local than healthcare? You know, and the interaction between a patient and a doctor, yet you're seeing maybe half the dollars get extracted out of local communities to out of town owned, you know, health systems and out of town owned carriers. And so it's kind of shop local is coming back to healthcare. And so that's really where we need to put our focus is like, hey, let's get the money to the value creators and to the value creating activities. Some of that's care, like obviously paying docs and nurses, but a lot of that's the other things. You know, in my book, I talk about Massachusetts because it's kind of a preview of coming attractions. You know, Obamacare was modeled after Romney care. And again, you see at the state level, healthcare costs went up. It's data from like the first 14 years of the century. And I think healthcare costs went up 37%. And then it dropped, you know, they couldn't increase taxes enough to offset it. So mental health spending went down 22%, public health 30%, education down 12%, human services down 11%, infrastructure, housing, economic development down 14%, law and public safety down 13%, Local aid down 50%. That's hurting. <laughs> you know, we need to take that dividend I was talking about earlier, take those dollars being squandered in healthcare and put them there. So paid course nurses and doctors fairly, but then all this other money that's sloshing around in the system and not helping people get healthier, put them into these things that actually help health outcomes. That would be the smart thing to do. <laughs> that would be the smart thing to do. All right. Well, that's all I have. That was great. I really appreciate you, Dave, coming on and giving us a different perspective. I think when I read about you and I read the things that you were talking about, it's definitely something that it was new to me. And I'm sure it's going to be new to a lot of my, my listeners. You know, don't be surprised if you get a few calls from <laughs> from business owners after this, you know, trying to or hoping to institute, you know, the health Rosetta way so they can help everyone, help themselves, help their employees and just try to improve our healthcare system because, you know, you talk about it being systemically. Well, you can only be systemic if you do it one person at a time. So thank you again. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we, we make the books available free. We don't want to have there be any barriers. So we're happy to have people come to the site. They can download it. You know, if they want to be connected with a local resource, we can help there. You know, that's really what our organization's all about. So we welcome those inquiries. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, Dave. And I will sign off as I usually do. The truth will set you free if you let it.